Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about creativity. We're talking about three different ways that people create. And we're talking to J.B. Howell, an amazing designer. If you haven't heard of him, I promise you're going to hear from him soon. You're going to hear of him soon. J.B., welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here. We met at Dice Tower Con just a little while ago, and I got to kind of hang out and play some games with you. You actually helped in some of the judging for the Board Game Design Challenge, and I really appreciate that. And I remember one of the uh, conversations we were having at the table, we started talking about creativity and just different methods and processes and whatnot. And you had some really interesting insight on ways to create and some different things that you've been learning and just applying in your own game design process. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that stuff today. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? That kind of thing. Well, I'm JB and I have been designing games uh, since elementary school. I designed my first board game in the third grade. Uh, my mother was my original play tester, and um, I spent most of my childhood gaming. My Both of my parents were actually uh, RPG tabletop gamers. My dad also did a lot of um, tabletop uh, uh, Warcraft, miniature-based type of games, games workshop stuff in the 80s. And uh, so I was kind of born into uh, gaming and uh, though my parents separated when I was very young, I've spent my whole life gaming. And I did a lot of board game design up until my teenage years. Then I shifted to RPG uh, design and writing for about 10 years. And then in my late 20s, I shifted back into board game design. And uh, I started pursuing publishing for the first time uh, around, let's see, when my daughter was born. So just about eight years ago is when I really decided, okay, I might uh, I might try and do something with all of these games that I've just been designing as a hobby. Um, and that's really where it, it started formally. Like the last eight years, I've, I've done substantially more than I did earlier in life. I was just dabbling and, and messing around for, you know, 25 years. Um, but yeah, I've been doing it a very long time uh, as a, as a passion, as a joy, and uh, now I do it semi-professionally, right? It's, it's not my full-time career, but I have enough games coming out that it uh, it definitely warrants a second career. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, are there any RPGs or board games that uh, you want to highlight as kind of your, your main ones that people might know you from? Well, I did some writing in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s uh, for uh, Shadowrun, um, freelance writing. Uh, I used to do some freelance writing for Earth Dawn as well. Those are role-playing games that I played uh, extensively in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. Uh, I haven't done much with RPGs since, I think, 2003. Maybe it was the last time I had a, a publication credit there. Um, it's really been all, almost all board games since then. Yeah, so what are some of the main board games that people might they might have heard of the game if they hadn't heard of you? Yeah, so um, this year is really the first year that my uh, games are coming out in publication. 
Um, in February, I had a game called uh, Chio's Secret that was released. It's a WizKids game. Uh, and then over the next three months, we've got a couple of Kickstarters fulfilling. Uh, Reavers of Midgard was a Kickstarter from late, late last year, October. Uh, they had some retail copies at Gen Con. There was some Gen Con buzz around it. Um, backers should be getting their copies uh, in the next couple of months, and then it'll go out into retail as well. Uh, earlier this year, uh, we had Papillon on Kickstarter. Uh, that had generated quite a lot of uh, buzz in the community, uh, not necessarily because of the popularity of the gameplay. Um, it was a Kickstarter that uh, had completely finished and fulfilled. It was around 86,000, I think. Uh, and then it got canceled by Kickstarter after it was uh, fully completed and just about ready to be released um, to the uh, fulfillment package. Uh, and so we had to relaunch it. Um, and so there was a considerable amount of conversation around, well, why did Kickstarter cancel Papillon? And, and we can talk about that a little bit if, if you're interested in that. Uh, but Papillon should be coming out uh, at Essen, and I believe backers should be getting their copies in November. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, my fourth release this year is Flotilla, uh, which is by WizKids. And uh, that's a heavy Euro. It's a co-design, my first co-design with Mike Mihilsik, um, who is amazing. Um, he and I work together a lot. We live five minutes apart here in Orlando. And uh, we built a Euro um, that I really think is going to um, generate a lot of conversation about how Euros are designed. Um, it's, it's a really interesting game. There's not a whole lot of games that, that really have new types of innovation. I think Flotilla is maybe one. Um, so uh, we have high hopes for that, and that's an Essen release as well. So those are the four games, first four games I have uh, coming out, and they're all coming out this year. Um, I also have uh, six other games under contract, most of which will be coming out next year. One or two of them may be uh, the following year. Yeah, very cool. Like I said in the intro, if people hadn't heard of you yet, I think they're going to hear from you uh, real soon. And Flotilla looks super interesting, man. It looks like Waterworld, the Euro game. And I don't know if that's the, the best way to put it, but uh, I'm kind of secretly hoping that that's what it turns out to be. I can have this like Waterworld experience, but also, uh, you know, the Euro. Euro yeah, it, it is a bit. I mean, the theme is definitely, um, it's a post-apocalypse theme, but it's it's not like a an anarchy Mad Max type of setting. Mike and I really built this setting that's intended to be um, like positive and hopeful. In other words, the the angle that we have is that you're you're rebuilding the world after a catastrophic event. So all the people you know in the world are coming together to build this massive floating city, which is sort of like the capital city of the of the new world, if you want to put it that way. Um, and uh, so you know the the thing about flotilla that's so interesting is that it's really kind of two parallel games in the same experience. Um, and uh, I can talk a little bit more about the gameplay of that one, um, if you like. It, um, But it, it, it's not going to feel quite like Waterworld in the sense that there's pirates in combat, because it's, it's not. It's a Euro. It's a heavy economy-based game um, with uh, you know efficiency and resource management, the type of things that you expect out of a Euro. 
Yeah, very cool. I'm excited to hear more about the design in a minute. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to come up in uh, in this topic that we're going into because we're talking about creativity. We're talking about different ways people create. And, and this is kind of based on that conversation we had based on a TED Talk, actually, uh, that you shared with me. And so what what are we talking about? When we're talking about these different ways that people create, what are those? And then let's kind of do a little deep dive into each one. Sure. So I, uh, I enjoy TED Talks. I, I watch them quite a bit. I love documentaries. I love learning. And several years ago, I saw this TED Talk um, and, uh, you know, right off the top of my head, I can't remember um, the speaker's name. He's an author, um, but he had basically I think the title of the TED Talk is Everything is a Remix. Um, and I found it really interesting because what he was proposing in the TED, TED Talk is that uh, creativity really comes from without more than it comes from within meaning we have so many influences from what we see and what we experience that the majority of creative energy that people have come in the form of what you've observed uh, and absorbed in in your surroundings. Uh, And he broke it down to say that there's really three categories of creativity. And he was mostly talking about kind of fine arts, um, but I like to apply it to board game design because I think it with a few small changes in, in the thinking, it, it really does apply. And he had broken it down into uh, copying, uh, transforming, and combining. Uh, so what he was saying with copying is that as an artist, especially if you're talking about uh, like a musician or a painter, uh, you'll frequently do an exact copy of an established work um, as you're trying to um, hone your skills. Um, so you might play somebody else's song note for note. Uh, you, you know, you might try to copy an established painting as so you learn the strokes, the, that sort of thing. Um, and then you start to get into sort of modeling where you, you're not making an exact copy, but you're copying the essence of something. You're modeling it and then you're making it your own. Um, and so that was kind of the, the first category that he described. The second that he described is transforming. And that's really where you start to get talk about making it your own, where you take something that you've seen, uh, you take the framework of something and and you start with a copy, but then you really start to modify it from there into something new, um, as something that you can define as yours um, as an artist. And so um, transforming again has has a root of copying, but you're taking it into a different direction. You're trying to create something new out of it. Uh, and then finally, he had talked about uh, combining. And this is where you take um, two or more things that are established um, and you start to bring them together so that it creates something entirely new. And, you, you know, with com- with combining, transforming or copying, in all cases, you have um, a root that is something that is established in the world, right? Somebody has already taken the time to create something and you're utilizing that as part of your personal creativity. Um, so, you know, his argument was that everything is a remix uh, because there there is very little just raw ingenuity, something brand new that you've just never seen and doesn't feel like it has influence from anywhere. Um and it's a great model to look at for board games. Um, you know, I, I see it all the time. I play um, an extensive amount of prototypes. Um, 
I go to a lot of prototype conventions. I like um, helping people improve the quality of their games and, and giving any insight that I can. And you, you see, every time I sit down to play a prototype, I, you know, I think about this because you see it just over and over again, where people are trying to uh, create something, but they have handles, they have things that you can grab onto that you're familiar with as a player. There's a, you know, there's a basic worker placement framework. There's a basic Euro framework. Um, you know, all the different types of mechanisms and genres that we talk about in board games, any of these three models apply for just about any game that you can sit down and play. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something just so important for artists in general, anyone in, you know, doing art in, in creative fields, but definitely in, in game design is realize that you're not going to come up with something original. It, it just doesn't happen. Like, and I think so many people get so worried about uh, innovation and, and being brand new and never before and all these things. It's, it's just, it just doesn't happen. Like we're all standing on the shoulders of giants at this point, uh, no matter what field you're in. And also understand that you have a style, but your style is based on the hundred plus other people that you like. And you take ideas from this person and that person and another person. You read a book and you saw a TED Talk and you, and you did all, you know, we all have that, that thing about us that we are the amalgamation of all the other things that we have experienced or enjoyed or liked or didn't like. And, that, and so that's, that's what creates us. It's, it's not completely original. But at the same time, it is because it's 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 brand new. But at the same time, it's built off of all these other things. I think that's something so important, especially for newer designers, to realize uh, that you're going to be a little bit derivative at first, especially when you really start starting to figure this whole thing out. And and you know, I, I teach English yeah. and creative writing, and so so many times a student will say, "Hey, Mr. Barrett, uh, do you think this story is any good?" And I have to ask. I say, "Well, based on what? You know, are, are we basing it on the entire spectrum of, of literature?" Because if so, no, this is terrible and it's trash and it needs to be thrown away. But if we're basing it on the fact that you're 15 and you've only read four books in your life and you're writing exactly like this other book you've already read, because that's all you know, then yeah, I think this is, this is okay. You're, you're, you're on the right track. And so I think it's also important just to realize kind of where you're at in the in the process of uh, experience and growth and that kind of thing uh, and, and just be okay with, with borrowing and, and stealing ideas. I mean, what, what's the Picasso quote? Good, good artists copy, great artists steal, you know? And so just kind right. of embracing that yeah. as opposed to running from it. That's right. And, and, you know, the, when you hear people write articles of advice, like, Hey, what's, what's the top, you know, five pieces of advice that you can give a brand new game designer. Uh, when you look at people's opinions on this, you're frequently going to see in that list, play a lot of games. Right. So the, the message there is you need to see what exists. You need to see all the different models and mechanisms and ways that people have done things in the past. And you might be inspired to create something new from there. In fact, one of the things that I'm guilty of all the time um, in a board game night is I, I just immediately start designing a new game while I'm playing a published board game for the first time ever. Just because I'm in the middle of the game, I'm seeing how all of the things in the game interact, um, I, I, and I immediately just start creating something new, taking my favorite parts of the experience that I'm currently having, uh, and then that's my, you know, that's my personal favorite thing about board gaming. So you know, you see all the time from designers play a lot of games, get exposure to the way games work, the way mechanisms interact. Um, and it, it falls into this same line of thinking where the reason you want to see all of these different games 
is so that you have a wide array of things to choose from in terms of your toolkit when you go to sit down and, and put something together yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And it, like you're saying, it gives you the juice, so to speak. It gets those creative juices flowing. When you see what other people have done and you go, oh, oh, okay, I see how this works. What if you did it this way? What if you looked at it from this other angle? What if you flipped it on its head and you can start creating something new you know, out of the, the thing that you're, you're experiencing, you're seeing? And I think it's also important. I've said this, I think, several times on the show in the past, something I got from Matt Colville, is that you develop taste before you develop skill. Like you know what's good long before you're able to create what's good. And so, you know, creating games that are basically just copying uh, other games, you know, you're, it's pandemic, but it's in space, you know, the exact same game, basically, but maybe you change the thing like that's, that's fun. Uh, and that's, that's part of the growing process, part of getting better and part of honing the craft. Uh, and eventually your taste and your skill will kind of be on the same page where you, you say this is good and I created it and, and it just takes some time. And I feel like a lot of people quit before they get to that point. They, they go, well, I, I must not be any good because my games aren't nearly as good as Eric Lang. And so I'm just going to give up because I can never be Eric Lang. It's like, well, Eric Lang wasn't any good, you know, X number of years ago either. And, but he just kept playing and kept working and kept designing. And eventually you, you get to a, a different level. And so I think that's something so important, especially in this, this idea, you know, copying, transforming, combining, what can you do copying, transforming, combining just to, to grow? Now, what would be your suggestion the new designer could do as far as maybe some exercises, maybe some different little design challenges they could do. Not nothing, you know, not trying to get published, but just trying to get better as far as these three concepts are concerned. Well, one of the things that I do all the time, uh, and it, it's reflected in the games that I have, you know, coming out, and it's one of the things that I probably will end up being kind of a, an anchor point for my, you know, personal reputation as a designer. Um, is I, I bring together mechanisms that you don't expect to be brought together. Uh, and I do it in a way that's, um, you know, mostly seamless and intuitive. Um, and, and I think that's a great exercise for designers to try. Uh, you know, Papillon brings together um, tile laying and area influence um, in, in a way that I haven't seen before. And they're, they're two mechanisms that don't typically go together. So, you know, I, I take, I often take those things as personal design challenges. Uh, I want to bring together these mechanisms that I haven't seen brought together. And often there's a good reason why they haven't been brought together, right? Because it's, it might be really difficult to actually make a quality game experience out of it. Um, but just the design challenge of trying to bring those things together forces you to think about the way that they interact and and think about how you could um, make those transitions. Um, and so it, it, they make for really nice design challenges um, to just think about the way that mechanisms can interact together. Don't always make an assumption uh, that just because you've played a dozen worker placement games that do things in a particular way, you don't have to make an assumption that that framework is going to work for the game that you're trying to make. Uh, there's no reason why you can't do, um, you know, really interesting things with workers. And we've seen that like over the last three to four years, we've seen some really fantastic worker placement games that really stretch the way you think about workers that, you know, you start to use them in a spatial way, like Yokohama did, um, or, uh, you know, my buddy Mike uh, has Manchuko going to Kickstarter next month. He's got this amazing model of, of worker cycling in and out that 
that just really creates these awesome decision matrices. So um, you, you you can take these mechanisms and, and bring them together in, in ways that create something new. So that's kind of one of the exercises that I encourage people to do is, is really think about the way that things interact. Think about the way that the mechanisms interact. Yeah, absolutely. And I love asking the question, what if, you know, after playing a game or while playing a game, like you're saying, let's go ahead and start designing it. I'm halfway through my term, but who cares? Let's see if I can design my own game. Uh, but asking what if, you know, what if this game was set in space? How would that change the mechanisms to, to kind of meet up with the theme? Or what if instead of this mechanism, what if we try this other thing? And then you can really start asking some interesting questions to get to some new game ideas, right? And, and things are being transformed, things are being combined. This is actually how I came to, so I've got a couple uh, solo games going to Kickstarter soon. And the core mechanism in that game, the idea, that's a little bit different, but the idea that came from this other guy, I can't even remember the name of it, but I saw a review for a game and I thought, wow, that's a really interesting core mechanism, but it's in the wrong game, right? It was like a shipping game and you were like shipping different goods and things like that. And it was multiplayer. And I was like, well, that's, that's interesting, I guess, but I feel like that could be a cooler mechanism if it was in a solo game and it was like action packed, you know, like you're on the run, you're trying to escape, you're trying to kill the bad guys. Like, I think that could be a cooler game. And I just started working on that. And that's kind of where the core mechanism idea came from and just started adding to and changing some things and moving things around and eventually came up with something totally brand new that I'm extraordinarily proud of. And so I think that's just the natural process of creativity where we're talking about music, film, board games, any of those things. And so it's just something to embrace as opposed to uh, worry about or, or, or run from. Now, as far as some of your games, walk me through some of the things that kind of inspired you or different ideas, maybe from other games or other mediums, uh, other art forms that kind of turned into Flotilla or, or uh, Chio Secret or any of these other games. Like, tell me, tell me some about your process. Sure. And actually, what's interesting about these four games is that the process was different for all of them. Um, you know, Chio Secret was a game that I designed strictly out of my uh, personal dislike of hidden role social deduction games. Uh, it's a it's a genre that I just I don't I've never really enjoyed as a player, and so I challenged myself. Said, can I make a hidden role uh, social deduction game that I would enjoy? Something that really caters more to the Eurocentric mind, um, and because most of the hidden role deduction games are lightweight, kind of twenty to thirty minute. Um, so I, I made a game that was dialed up the deduction a lot more, took away all the pointing and voting. And, um, and I, so I'd really challenged myself to make a game uh, in a genre that I, I don't particularly enjoy. So that was the design challenge. That was the process that I started with with that game. Um, Papillon's the rare game for me that was top down. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to make a very beautiful game with a lot of table presence um, that was gateway to maybe gateway plus in weight. Uh, so I, I, with Papillon, I actually started kind of with a product vision and worked out the game mechanisms after the fact. And that is, you know, that's maybe only out of the 38 or so games that I have designed um, in my Dropbox there, I think I have two that I maybe started with a product vision and Papillon is one of them. So um, that's very unusual for me to, to operate in that way. Um, but, uh, but that's how I started with, uh, with Papillon was really with more of a product in mind. Um, Flotilla was another design challenge and, and actually what I considered, a, I thought it was impossible, frankly, 
Um, and I had been trying to work it out for about 18 months and I was stuck. Uh, and I, I turned to my friend, Mike, who's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And I said, you know, I can't figure out how to do this, but this is what I'm trying to do. Um, and do you want to join me in this project? Because if the two of us can't figure out together, then, it, then I don't think it can be done. Um, and we were able to, you know, we were able to actually figure it out and, and make the product. Um, so it, that, so flotilla came out of a personal design challenge to, to do something, um, that had not been done before in games. And that's, you know, one of those rare innovation moments, like out of, again, out of the almost 40 games I've made flotilla is the one that has, I think maybe true innovation. Um, I don't know that any of the others do. Because it's like we were talking about, it's very hard to create something brand new that you haven't seen before. Um, and then finally, um, Reavers of Midgard actually uh, came about because uh, I got some feedback from a publisher that I respect uh, a lot. And it was early in my career. Um, I, I had maybe one, I think one game signed at that point. Uh, and I was really trying to establish a foothold um, with networking and and getting my name out there with publishers and, and doing that whole hustle. And, uh, I had a publisher, uh, tell me that they really liked, um, all of the games that I was showing. Uh, and they, they really liked the, the thoughtfulness that went into all of them, but most of them were trying a little bit too hard, you know, cause I was very uh, bent on making things that were new. Um, and, and, trying to innovate. And the last game that I showed them out of, I think four, we were just doing a sit down where I was showing several games. The last game that I showed them wasn't trying to innovate at all. This was just me um, wanting to make a role selection game because I had never made a role selection game before. And that was the one that the publisher went, wow, this is really good. You should do this more often. Um, uh, because it, it uh, Again, I wasn't trying too hard. I was basically at that point, I was just trying to make a game that I would enjoy w utilizing this this particular mechanism. Uh, and I, so I took that advice to heart and I created a lot more games over the next year or two after that point um, where I was just working with established mechanisms, uh, not trying to create new mechanisms, not trying to create subgenres that don't exist, all those kinds of things which really kind of define a lot of my early years as designing um, just making good quality games with mechanisms that are familiar um, brought together in, in ways that people haven't seen before. Um, and, and really that's how Reavers and Midgard was born because Reavers and Midgard was that role selection game, you know, where I was just uh, uh, trying to create something in that space because I'd, I'd never worked with that mechanism before. Yeah. Very cool. And I think it's something else just to, keep in mind as, as designers is you have to be careful how many new things that you're putting into a game, uh, because if you have too many things, it's going to be very difficult for people to learn, you know? And so like if, when Donald X Vaccarino made Dominion, okay, deck building was, was pretty, pretty brand new. You know, it wasn't a lot of games doing that. And so the game itself was really just that one core mechanism. If he'd had created a game that had the really deep deck building and this other thing, and this other thing over there, it would, would have probably been too much. It would have been too complicated, way too much for people to learn and grasp because it wasn't quite familiar yet. So I feel like it's also something to think about is you got to be careful how much innovation you're putting into uh, a game because it, it might up the complexity level or, or 
the ability to learn the game maybe a little more than you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I usually uh, refer to them as anchor points and, and um, I've heard other people refer to it as handles, right? So players need things to grab onto. Um, The more things that are familiar, the less learning curve is associated with the experience. Um, So there's a really kind of delicate balance of um, working with uh, what is known. Uh, And sometimes I'll use the expression, innovating in the known space, meaning you take what's familiar um, and figure out how to innovate inside of that space, right? Instead of trying to create something entirely brand new, because it's very, very difficult to do. Um, Work within the things that people are familiar with, but do something unique and interesting with it. Um, And uh, that's the delicate balance, right? It's, it's, It's really hard to get to that point oftentimes. Um, but you certainly do want familiar things for people to wrap their arms around uh, when they're learning how to play, especially a heavier game. Um, having anchor points is great. Yeah, definitely. Now, are there any things that you can point to as specific inspirations that led to one of your games? Where you, you Maybe you played a game, you love the core mechanism, you're like, oh, okay, what if we did it and turned it around and did this other theme? Anything like that, like any kind of stories. Oh yeah. I mean, all the time. So like I said, it's, it's the thing that I'm probably the most guilty of. Uh, and people know it when they're playing a, a board game with me, they know, right. They'll see my eyes gloss over. They'll see me sort of daze off and they know at that moment that I've, I've started working on a new game, uh, just utilizing the mechanism that's, uh, that's in front of me. Um, in terms of, uh, specific stories, uh, I have a game that is uh, signed with WizKids. Uh, I think it's probably going to be maybe a Gen Con release or between Gen Con or S and of next year, which is a um, worker placement game that I had started designing basically in the middle of playing Simon's um, Godfather. Uh, I think it's called uh, Corleone's Revenge or something like that. I can't remember the subtitle. Uh, but it's the worker placement game, The Godfather. It's Eric Lang game, Simon. And uh, I didn't actually enjoy that game. Um, I, I really liked the way that the worker placement had overlapping zones. Uh, you know, you could, you could put a worker inside of an individual district. You could put a worker on the border of two different districts, and it would essentially count as being in both. Um, that concept I found to be really uh, fascinating and uh, appealing. And I also felt like there were not a ton of games kind of utilizing that space. Um, the Godfather itself for me is, is, is too mean of a game. I think the first three rounds, a hundred percent of my workers had gotten blown up and I got zero value out of the turns. I was like, well, this is not a lot of fun. So I turned around and made a game uh, utilizing that border concept and, uh, uh, I added some engine building to it because I hadn't really ever seen engine building workers. Uh, so the idea is that, you know, you, you place a worker and it has a base ability. Um, the ability doesn't necessarily come from the space. Like in most worker placement games, you go to a space, you get the value of that space. I took the idea of uh, the worker itself has an inherent value and the space is maybe influencing the inherent value of the worker. And then you know, I added ways to engine build that worker so that you could stack one, two, three abilities uh, when you go to place it. 
and it's an area influence game. It's it's very heavily about uh, controlling areas, and and you can assign on the borders and. Uh, there's a center space that counts as being in every single one of the areas on the board. There's only one of them. Um, but that whole thing came about uh, while I was playing The Godfather. And, and I probably have 15 more stories similar to that. Where, In fact, just last week, I played Coinbra for the first time. Um, and uh, that game had a lot going on. It was, it was very wide. It was a little bit busy for me. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, but I really enjoyed the the core mechanic, which has this inverse relationship, you know, between the value of the die, um, lower value versus higher value. Um, a six is not necessarily better than a one because it's just situational as to whether you want the value of the one for its secondary effect or, or whatever the case might be. But there was a really nice inverse relationship um, between the value of the die and how you choose to utilize it. And so I, I took that concept and I started working on a new uh, new card game, which I just put to the table last week for the first time. So I, I do that all the time. Uh, take something from a game that I've just played and make something new. Yeah, very cool. Now, you've mentioned that a good bit as far as like making sure you're playing already published games and whatnot. What, what would you say is your ratio of playing other people's games, especially published games, compared to the amount of time you're spending designing games? Because I feel like it can be really hard to balance those. It is hard to balance those. I, I don't get a lot of game nights. Um, and, and unfortunately, I actually don't have uh, the catalog that I should have in terms of games played um, for a long time. If you back, back up about three or four years or even five years, you know, when I was really just starting to get into pitching to publishers for the first time uh, over and over and over again, you know, publishers or other designers would ask me, hey, have you played X? And the answer like nine out of 10 times was no. I just had such a low catalog of games played. Uh, it was really about three years ago that I, I was just dialing up my game nights, trying to get more experience with established games. Um, these days I get maybe two game nights a month and we'll get in uh, about four games each of those nights, so maybe eight published games a month, not counting conventions. You know, at conventions like Dice Tower or BGG Con, uh, I tend to get you know maybe twenty games played over the course of an entire con. So it's it's not it's not a ton, uh, about a hundred games a year maybe, which uh, I would like it to be more. But my ratio of prototypes to published games is is probably nine to one. You know, I do prototype nights twice a week, sometimes a third, uh, and I'll see four, five, six prototypes in a night. So uh, a lot more prototypes than published games for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely know that struggle, man. Living in Honduras, it's difficult to uh, get published board games here, let alone get them to the table. And so, yeah, I've had to do the same thing when I go to conventions or when I'm in Atlanta for the summer. It's like, all right, I and I, I create my list. I think that's another thing is to be very intentional about the games you want to play and for certain reasons. And so this summer I had a list of like 25 games that I wanted to get to the table. I wanted to play and all of them had a reason. It wasn't just like, cause I think it's cool. It's like, I want to learn how to do this combat mechanism. I want to learn how to do this type of area control. So I want to play this game that does it well, that way I can grow and learn from it. And so I think that's also can be helpful as, as a designer is just being intentional about the games yeah. that you're getting to the table as opposed to just playing, playing whatever. There's nothing wrong with just playing whatever, but uh, you know, as an artist that you're trying to grow and get better, it's, it's, it pays to be very specific in in the things that you're you're trying to learn. 
No, I totally agree. I'm very deliberate about my choices for game nights. And uh, frequently people will laugh at me because I'm doing research. They know I'm doing research, right? It, it, we're having a game night. We're playing published board games, but they know I'm doing research. Yeah, for sure. I'm in the same boat. And and it's kind of funny, you know, people, they'll see me during a game and I'll just kind of sit back and they're like, at first they thought I had analysis paralysis, you know, but it turns out I'm really just unpacking how the designer got to these choices. I'm thinking, okay, oh, I see why they did this because I bet you they had a problem with the balance of this and these numbers here. And so I'm like trying to break the game down so I can understand it. It's almost like when I was playing football, you break down film of the other team in order to learn how they do things and in order to beat them, how to grow and all that kind of thing. I feel like it's the same kind of thing with, with board games or any other art. You just, you break it down to its basic points and then you kind of figure out how it all works together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now we, talk, we already talked about walking that fine line between something new and something completely derivative. What's your advice as far as making sure that, you know, in, in the copying, in the transforming, in the combining, you know, in the taking of parts from other games and other ideas and things like that, what is, what's your advice as far as making sure you're walking that fine line well, as opposed to just rethinking a game completely or just basically reproducing something that's already been made and it's already derivative? Like, what's, what's your advice? Well, I mean, it's very difficult to know the difference uh, for new designers because they they think it's new oftentimes when it's not. So, um, And I see this really most often with um, deck builders and worker placement games like those two themes in particular for new game designers uh, somebody puts a deck builder to the table and and it's really you know 90 percent star realms um and and 10 percent you know oh i've added this one thing and and, and that one thing is maybe like the way that a, a keyword interacts differently than you've seen in other games um but the, the deck building space, like when, when I, I'll use deck building as an example because it's, it's an easy example. If you want to create something new with deck building, you need to integrate it with uh, a board game experience. Um, just changing the behaviors on cards, you know, oh, a card, when it taps, it does this effect, which we haven't seen before in uh, Magic or other deck building games you're not really bringing anything new to the table, right? Because you're you're still saying that the entire framework of the deck building game is just deck building. Um, and it, especially with deck building, because the big boys in the market, they, they own that space with all the IPs, you know, with all the different legendaries. And they own the market on just uh, retheming the deck building concept. Uh, and putting out a new product with with a new IP. If you're if you're trying to get that balance that you're talking about, where you're bringing something new to the table, it needs to be more of of a deck building board game hybrid. Which is why I think Clank was so successful because it was bringing something new to the space. And you know, the first time I saw somebody try to integrate deck building with a board game um, was uh, uh, Martin Wallace's game. Um, uh, the name escapes me. It's based off of the Neil Gaiman story. Um, oh, a study in um, Emerald. Oh, yes, a study at Emerald. Thank you. Um, that was the first time I'd, I'd seen any game really try to integrate some of the deck building concepts with a board game, and it took a couple of years before you really got a product that was uh, very well polished, like Clank. Um, but that's really where the space is if you're trying to do something new with with 
deck building. You, you just can't take Dominion, Legendary, Star Realms. You can't take these games and, and just retheme them and add one or two new um, keywords or, or whatever the case might be. You really got to get more of a, of a larger experience than just deck building. So deck building is part of a game. It is not the game by definition. And the same thing I think is true with worker placement. If you're if you're doing a standard worker placement game where you place workers, you can only place in available spaces, you're collecting stuff, you're turning stuff in, that's been done a lot. You need to bring something new to the table. You need to show us new types of interactions where the decision matrix for how you get workers is interesting, how you place workers is interesting. This is why Raiders of the North Sea, I think, is one of the more innovative games that I've seen in the last several years. It defined a new way to do worker placement. You, you, you place the worker, get a thing. Pick up a worker, get a thing. That's your turn. You can define it simply, um, but it, it sort of redefined the way you think about worker placement because it was, it was giving you a worker value on a pickup um, in a lot of cases, in addition to on a placement. Um, and that's enough. That is enough of a new type of um, interaction to create that balance where you've brought something new to the table, but you've also um, built something in a space that people uh, will recognize and is familiar. And, and so that's really how I think you have to, I, I didn't really tell you the how to get to that balance, but I gave a few examples of, of where I think um, people have achieved that that balance of I brought something new, I'm working in a familiar space. Yeah, but it actually reminds me of something I'm pretty sure you said uh, while we were playing a prototype at Dice Tower Con, and it was make sure the best part of your game isn't just something you pulled from another game, right? Oh, Feel absolutely. free right. to borrow other ideas <laughs> and stuff, but make sure there's something else. Like, Make sure that's not the best part of your game. So maybe maybe that's part of it. Well, that's also, that is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're playing a prototype and the thing that you're enjoying the most in the prototype is the thing that came from, you know, almost, almost uh, note for note came from a different uh, game and that's the thing you're enjoying the most, then, then you know that that prototype needs quite a bit of work. Um, it, you know, because the thing that you're trying to bring to the game that you think is um, interesting uh, and sets it apart from other games in the same space, that's got to be the thing I latch onto. That's got to be the thing I identify as being um, enjoyable uh, and the highlight of the experience. Um, and if that's not the case, then you probably haven't achieved that balance. Yeah, absolutely. So where do we go from here? You know, as far as looking to the future, both in your own designs and like you're saying, you play a ton of prototypes, you work with a lot of other designers trying to help them make good games. You know, the market has become so crowded. It's so noisy out there. There's so many games coming out every single day. It seems like, you know, 700 come out at Gen Con, thousand plus come out at Essen. What is, what's your advice on, on taking these concepts of copying, transforming, combining in order to, in order to continue making new ideas, new things, new games, fun games. Like what would you, what's your advice for, especially up and coming designers right now who like are looking at the market and thinking, why even waste my time? Like why would I even waste my time on, on a game that's, you know, somebody else is probably already working on. What do you tell those people? Uh, there's really two things. Um, a, a good game is probably not good enough. Um, I, you know, I've talked to publishers a lot over the past couple of years um, and 
I've heard repeatedly uh, last year, this year, from publishers, games that we signed three years ago, we would not sign today. Um, because the quality of games is higher, the number of games that are available um, is, um, you know, two, threefold. Um, a publisher can look at a hundred games and choose one, um, you know, or, or some small percentage of, of what they see. So you can make a good game and you may not be able to, to get it signed um, and published because right now publishers are really looking for great uh, because they're in a position where they can do that. Uh, for them, it's a you know buyer's market. So if you're designing and playtesting and, and you don't think that you've got something great, then you may need to keep working on it. Um, and, and, you know, so one thing is that good is not quite enough. Uh, I think another thing is what, you know, one of the things that I started doing maybe about three years ago, and it was really, I started with Papillon really. It's the first game I ever did this is I I really started to think in terms of product. Um, you're not, you are just a game designer, right? But you're, you have to think in terms of product because so many games, um, excel because of the overall packaging and not necessarily the quality of the core mechanisms of the gameplay. So you can get games that will come out um, that can wow with the table presence. Um, something like Photosynthesis, the Gen Con that it was out, it was it was buzzing all over Twitter and social media um, because of the table presence of the game. Um, and there's a lot of games right now, you know, a lot of publishers talk about the toy factor in games. Um, and, and people love having a toy factor uh, in games. And, and there's some really fascinating games that are going to be coming out. I've seen the prototypes for them. They're not out yet, where people are dialing up the toy factor in crazy ways. And, and, and it's just fun. Um, and so thinking in terms of product um, will really help, I think, a, as a designer. You have to understand that the publisher owns the product. So the, the, the publisher really has to have that product vision. But the more that you're able to speak that language uh, with the publisher uh, and get on board together um, to make a product, the more you might be able to um, sell them on a game. Like if they look at your game and they, they like it, but they also like two others, if you can bring a product vision that maybe the two others are not, then you might be able to actually get you know, get on with that publisher um, when they're narrowing it down to which games they really want to take. Um, so having that product vision, I think, is kind of important. Understanding the quality of games right now is really high. Um, so build those relationships with publishers. Um, you know, cold calling doesn't work for a whole lot of people. Um, Take the time to sit with a publisher and meet them and network. Uh, and even if you show them a game and they don't necessarily like it, you want them to know who you are. Uh, and the more that you can get familiar with publishers, what you find out is that publishers talk to each other. Um, they are a large family. Uh, so you know if, if, if there's a publisher that likes you and respects you, they might circulate your name around with other publishers. And, and I had the benefit of that happen for me um, you know, fairly early in my career. So those types of things 
those are the types of things that I think matter. Yeah, I absolutely just totally wholeheartedly agree more and more as a designer, you, you have to take a holistic approach. You can't just create a good game. It can't just have good mechanisms. It can't just have good table presence and good art and good graphic design. And good, it has to have good all of those things if it's going to stand out at all versus just getting forgotten basically the same day that it gets announced or the same day that it, it comes out. And so what does it look like as a designer to go in and, and from the beginning have that holistic approach to things, not just thinking, I want to make a good game, but thinking, I want to make a good product. I want to make... Uh, something that's going to make a publisher a lot of money because that's at the end of the day what they're thinking. You know, they're they're wondering how can I market this, how can I make money off of it. But yeah, like you're saying, just build relationships. So over, let's see, this is Origins three years ago, something like that. Uh, I pitched a a football game to a publisher, and it wasn't something that they end up wanting. It wasn't quite, it wasn't good fit. But uh, right after the pitch. They had another football game. It was very different from mine, but it was another football game that they had a second edition coming out. And the guy, the uh, the post, he asked me my ideas or my thoughts on a, a design challenge that they'd run into with the second edition. They were trying to fix one little system. And they couldn't figure out a good way to do it. And I said, well, hey, what if you what if you try this instead? And he thought, and he's like, well, that's that's actually a pretty good idea. We'll, we'll, we'll test that. We'll see if it works out. And then this past Dice Tower Con, so we're talking like three years later. He, I, I walked by, you know, say, hey, it's good to see you again. And he actually handed me a copy of the second edition and opened it up. And then the back of the rules, my name is in there, a little design credit as helping out with this one rule that they ended up keeping in the game. And uh, so it's just a real cool moment. He handed me the game. He said, here's your free copy. Appreciate your help. And I said, well, I've got a, this other game I think would fit in your line. He said, oh, pull it out. Let's, let's talk about it. And so I showed him this game and then and he took it home and he might end up signing it. Maybe we'll see. But that was a three-year process of, of you know, networking and introducing myself, building a relationship to get to a point where, where maybe now I've hopefully got a game that it's going to be signed by. And so I think you just kind of have to take the, the long approach with a lot of these things, whether it's making a game like you're saying, Flotilla, 18 months you were working on it. And then how long did Flotilla take total? Well, once, once Mike and I actually figured out sort of the, the thing that I was calling the impossible thing, once we actually figured that out, the game came together in under three months. I mean, it was just, it was like a downhill snowball. And like we, we put the first play test of the game with the flotilla setting, with the mechanics ironed out the way we wanted them to. We'd gotten past the really hard part. That was February. We had it signed in April. Yeah. Um, and, and it still needed a lot of development work. Um, but uh, we were just, Playtesting it at a prototype convention, um, Zev from WizKids happened to be there. He played it. He fell in love with it. Uh, he understood that there was still a lot of development needed on it. He gave us an additional, um, what did I say, that was April? He gave us until the end of the year to finalize uh, the design um, and so that we could get started on the art assets and everything in, in the fall. So, I mean, once we got past the the thing that was blocking the progress of the game, it came together very, very quickly at that point. Yeah. But th- at the same time, the whole process, we're talking two plus years, you know, and wingspan, it just won the spill de jars. It was a three year process for that game to become, you know, what's, what's award winningly now the best game in, in the world, according to that, that award, you know? And so I feel like more and more games are just going to take maybe a little longer in their playtesting processes, their development processes to get to the point where they are quote unquote good enough to stand out from the rest? Sometimes it, it all depends, man. Uh, Papillon, I designed Papillon on the plane ride home from Origins. 
And then shortly after Dice Tower had it signed, that had a six-week window. Uh, I, I think I had only gotten it to the table maybe eight or nine times. Um, but again, that game was all about product. Um, and the publisher fell in love with the product vision that I had. So even though the, the, the game mechanisms and game play still needed quite a bit of development, which we did over the next nine months, um, the product vision was so clear and uh, attractive to the publisher that, that they ran with it. Um, so, I mean, every game, the process is so different from every game, but that development time is really critical, right, to, to finalize the game. But you don't have to finish a game to get a publisher's attention, especially not if you're good at framing your pitch around a product. But, you know, not a lot of publishers uh, are willing to sit through that dev time anymore. There's so many games available that they don't, they don't need games where they need to sit through that dev time unless you really kind of have something uh, uh, special. Yeah, that's a really good point. And like like we've been saying, it's all about casting that vision and, and showing them the product uh, productability, marketability of that thing to help them make money. Well, JB, this has been great, man. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing advice for someone, maybe an up and coming designer? They're really trying to figure this thing out. They're trying to work through these different ideas of creativity and, you know, I kind of think, what would you tell them? Well, like we said before, play a lot of games. Look at the way that things interact in games. I mean, this is the most important uh, thing about it because for me, game design is all about um, making people feel clever. Um, you want people to feel clever about themselves. They, they solve the puzzle. And if you can make somebody feel clever, then then you know you've done a good job with your game. And so the way that you make people feel clever about themselves is understanding what goes into your decision matrix. What are the choices that somebody has to make? Um, what are the opportunity costs that they have to consider, right? And so often in game design, you hear, hear people talk about tension. This is sort of this, I'm saying the same thing, but I'm, I'm saying it in slightly different words. Um, tension gets created when you ha present somebody with a choice, you know, where you go left, right, or center, um, and you have to consider the different value or opportunity costs of each of those choices. And you want somebody to feel like they made the right choice. They feel clever about themselves. And so play a lot of games, pay attention to the way things interact, pay attention to the decisions you have to make, right? The decision matrix is everything. So think about it. Think about the choices that you make and why you make them and how the game presents you with those choices because it's those interactions are, are what's going to be key to the success of your own games. Awesome. That's really, really good advice. Well, again, JB, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Congratulations on all the games that have been signed and uh, that are coming out soon or in the near future at least. And uh, good luck with all the other games you're working on and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I had a great conversation. I love the show. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com.
And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?